You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. My name is Harrison Ford. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And uh, as always, it's a pleasure to be with y'all. Thanks for coming out. Um, So I just recently got back from uh, Birmingham, Alabama. I was at our denomination's um, big annual meeting called General Assembly. And uh, I wanted to give a a moment of greetings because I roomed the entire week with Jim Polizzi, one of our former pastors. So he says hello. Um, I've thanked him for his service many times, so you don't have to. Uh, but he, he says hello, he says he dearly misses City Church, and he hopes that he can make it up soon. Um, you, you know, I, one of the things I do love about traveling is I really love airports. Um, like, I love even the weird things about it. Like, I love the weird food in it. Um, I, I, for some reason, I love, like, in an airport, like, the worse, the better for me. You know, I just indulge all my vices. Um, I, I also love to people watch, and uh, Brittany and I used to have this game when we had long layovers where we would say, you know, uh, can you, we would write lists out for one another of like, you got to spot someone who is, you got to like, you got to spot the youth group who are all wearing the same t-shirt, um, stuff like that. So I love airports. Uh, I did not love this trip because my flight was at five o'clock in the morning. So, um, you know, I was starting on a bad, off on a bad foot there. But one of the things I started to notice, too, this go-around, was that I don't love that everywhere you walk, there are televisions. And everywhere, all those televisions are on, like, CNN or some kind of news uh, station. And I don't know about you, but every time, you know, you turn on the news now or you look on social media, it seems like you're confronted with some fresh new hell. You know, it felt like a dystopia. Every time I'd walk by, I'd be like, oh my gosh, there's another, you know, it, it, you can't go watch a news show without hearing of a mass shooting or seeing a, a Ukrainian apartment block blown up by Russian artillery or hearing some indicator of a coming economic collapse. And, and so this time, uh, you know, being at the airport, hearing that at like 4.30 a.m., uh, it felt like a kind of dystopic fever dream. It was terrible. You know, um, and what I started to notice is that you can't, watch the news without coming away with just some sense of hopelessness. It's hard to find hope when you hear of what's going on in the world today. You know, a a month ago, um, in the Atlantic magazine, Elizabeth Brunig, one of their columnists, wrote an article about this, and she says that there's just this undeniable pervasive sense of hopelessness that runs throughout our society. She wrote this, she said, perhaps the most troubling symptom of our cultural rot is the sense, detectable already in some people, that there is simply no future, no future for us at all. This sentiment takes many forms, whether individual or national. Some people are taking their own lives in despair or exhaustion, a phenomenon reflected in spiking suicide rates. Some there's going to be a national divorce, a coward's term for a second civil war, and some say that there ought to be such a war. 
And if you take them at their word, either way, they're saying there's no hope for the United States. It was a bleak assessment of our culture, but it's hard not to, when you watch the news, get a sense of that's the way people are feeling, or when you have conversations at work or around the dinner table. And so the million-dollar question here is, what do we do with this? What, you know, in the face of inescapable hopelessness, what do we do? And it's not just, you know, you may not feel that about, about you know, the national um, outlook, and that's fine, but I, I'm sure that there is some place in your life that feels inescapably hopeless. And so when you see that, when you confront that, the question is, what do you do? Today, in our text, uh, we're going to encounter Jesus bringing hope to three seemingly hopeless people. And what I want to suggest is that what we're going to see here is that the hope that he brings to them is the very same hope that he brings to our hopelessness today. So if you would, please open up with me in your Bibles to Luke 8. Luke 8, we're going to look at verses 40 through 56. This is continuing our sermon series going through Luke 7 and Luke 9, in which we're asking, who is Jesus? Beginning in verse 40, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed, welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had only a daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So what I want us to do this afternoon is I want us to um, look at each of these three people that Jesus encounters, and I want us to ask the question of how is he bringing hope to their hopeless situation? 
And what does that mean for us? So first, let's start with Jairus. Uh, Jairus, it says in the text, was a ruler of the synagogue. And this was a member of the Jewish laity who was chosen um, to kind of be in charge of the upkeep of the building and to oversee all of the religious services. And this is an extremely important uh, position within Jewish religious life. And so oftentimes this would have gone to someone who was oftentimes very wealthy because they could act as a benefactor for the building, but also someone who had, uh, was seen as a morally upstanding person and someone who was well-connected so they could get more people involved in the services. But despite all of this, despite all that Jairus had going for him, he was desperate. His only child, a 12-year-old daughter, was dying. And you know, thankfully, I've never had to go through this kind of hell on earth, but I've had friends who've had, and what I know of from them is that there is no greater feeling of helplessness than your child falling deathly ill and you not being able to do anything. And that is precisely where Jairus was, and that's precisely why he fell at Jesus' feet. And I think that we can learn three things from Jesus' interaction with him. The first is this, hopelessness comes for us all. Jairus seemingly would have had everything. Money, influence, authority. His friends would have looked and said, why, how could such a bad thing happen to such a good person? And yet here he is at Jesus' feet pleading for his daughter's life. You know, I think that we, I think that we would all agree that yes, surely tragedy can happen to any of us and it can come at any time. But frankly, I think that we rarely live like that. Because I think the, the hopelessness of that uh, is too much to bear. And so we dissociate from it. Maybe we do that through, um, through distracting ourselves by making our schedules more and more busy. Or turning more and more to the endless scroll of social media. Or maybe we numb ourselves to it through overeating or through abusing substances, or to going to porn. Or maybe we try and have some semblance of control of it through our bank account, or the weight on the scale, or you know, trying so hard to ensure our children's success and well-being. But the reality is that none of us can outrun the curse of the fall. The, the world is completely broken by it, and, and it's infected each of our hearts. And so the question that I want to pose to each of us today is this. What are you going to do when it catches up with you? What, what do you have a hope that supersedes and can withstand the hopelessness of living in a broken and fallen world? But this leads us to the second thing I think we can learn from Jairus. Our hopelessness, our, these tragic circumstances like this, it isn't without a purpose. You see, the good news is that God often uh, uses the hopeless circumstances of our life to bring us to him. This is precisely what happened with Jairus. He came to Jesus because his daughter was dying. He was desperate. He had likely tried everything. And we know, you know, Pressing a little further in the passage, this was certainly the case for the bleeding woman. God, and the, you know, this isn't sure, uh, sheer coincidence. 
God often brings us to a place of hopelessness so that he might help us to find our hope in him. Now let me be clear here. Uh, God isn't the cause of evil and suffering. Scripture makes that very clear. Evil and suffering come into the world through the fall and it's perpetuated eternally until Jesus returns because of the brokenness of the world and because of the sinfulness of the human heart. But God, in his infinite wisdom, works in and through the fallenness of the world and the fallenness, the way that sin affects each of our lives. He works in and through that to bring about his perfect will. You know, if you were with us earlier in the year, you might remember we were um, looking at the story of Joseph. And, you know, the climax of the Joseph story is really when he brings his brothers, these brothers that had sold them into slavery, he brings them into uh, the palace, and he looks at him and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That phrase is emblematic, not only of the Joseph story, not only of the Genesis narrative, but of the entire uh, redemptive arc of the Bible. What What others meant for evil, what Satan meant for evil, God has turned into good through the redemption accomplished by Christ. For Joseph, uh, God worked through the seemingly hopeless circumstance of Joseph being sold into slavery so that Joseph could be made one of the most important people in Egypt and save his family, God's people, from uh, a deadly famine. And in a similar way, God providentially uses these seemingly hopeless circumstances in each of our lives to bring us closer to him. Because it's through these circumstances that he shows us there's no hope outside of him. It's through these circumstances that he humbles us so that we'll finally fall at his feet like Jairus did. It's through these circumstances that he cuts through the fog of our distraction and our numbness to create a kind of holy uh, desperation for him. And it's through, perhaps the, you know, perhaps the most important way that he uses this, is that it's through these circumstances that he sobers us up to the reality that we aren't in the driver's seat of life. That we don't have everything under control. Oliver Berkman is a British author who writes about um, productivity and time management. But his method is a bit counterintuitive because it's all based around the idea of embracing limits. He has a newsletter called The Imperfectionist, and he recently wrote this. When you grasp the sense in in which your situation is completely hopeless, instead of just very challenging you can unclench. You get to exhale. You no longer have to go through life adopting the brace position because you see that the plane has already crashed. And then, that's precisely when you can throw yourself at life's hard challenges, the the, uh, impressive accomplishments, the bold life choices, the deeply fulfilling relationships. You get to live more intensely Because you're no longer making your full participation in life dependent on reaching some standard of productivity, of certainty, about the future, of competence that you were never going to reach 
in the first place. Now, I don't know if Berkman is a believer, uh, but if he's not, he is really, it's a common, kind of a common grace insight because he is perfectly describing how God uses hopelessness in our life to unclench our hands from thinking that we have it in control and to come to him. And so I wonder, where in your life do you need to unclench today? Where in your life do you need to stop desperately managing circumstances? Where in your life do you need to stop distracting yourself and numbing yourself to your circumstances? Where in your life do you need to admit that the, that the circumstances in your life just aren't challenging, but rather they're hopeless if left in your own hands. Now, I'm suggesting these questions because I'm not wanting you, it's not because I'm wanting you to give in to resignation and despair. I recognize it could sound like that. But rather, I'm suggesting these because the third thing that we learn from Jairus is arguably the most important thing, that Jesus meets us in our hopelessness. You know, there's a sense in this passage that that meeting Jairus is precisely why Jesus came to the city. You know, no alternative uh, purposes are given for him being there. And then Jairus falls at his feet and he asks him to come to his house. And Jesus doesn't say, well, I've got some other things that I need to take care of. I'll be there in a little bit. No, he, he drops everything and goes right with him. It appears that he went to the city for the precise purpose of entering into Jairus' hopelessness. And this isn't an isolated event. Frankly, it's the very shape of redemptive history itself. I mean, think about the incarnation. In the incarnation, Jesus leaves his heavenly throne to bring the hope of heaven into the hopelessness of a fallen world. Think about Psalm, 20, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel, fear no evil, for you are with me. Think about Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fire, you, sh- you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Think about Jesus' last, some of the last words that he gave to his disciples before he uh, ascended back into heaven. Some of the last words that he gave to people who were likely going to be persecuted and die for their faith. He said, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Friends, if you're in Christ, this is what he's saying to you today too. I'm with you always. I'm with you in the dark places. I'm, in, I'm with you in the places where you feel most hopeless. And today, friends, God wants you to know that he is in that place with you. And he invites you to lay that burden down at his feet, just like Jairus did. And here's why he wants us to do that. Jesus brings us hope. He brings hope to the hopelessness in our lives 
by uniting us to his fullness. We see this with Jesus' encounter with the bleeding woman. On his way to Jairus' home, a woman comes up behind Jesus and she touches the hem or the edge of his clothing. And like Jairus, she was a desperate person. For 12 years, uh, she had a chronic, a chronic illness that made her bleed almost constantly for 12 years. And so for 12 years, the length of time in which Jairus' daughter had been alive, this woman had been living uh, in, in an absolute hell uh, in her life. You know, she didn't just suffer physically, but she also suffered socially and emotionally. According to Jewish purity laws, menstrual bleeding, and that's what would have been happening here, menstrual bleeding made women ceremonially unclean, the same way ejaculation made men ceremonially unclean. And so for the majority of, of women, after their period was over, they would have been considered clean. But because of this woman's condition, she would have been re rendered perpetually unclean. There's no way that she would have been able to be considered clean. There's no way that she would have been able to enter back into society. And so it's likely that, uh, like the demoniac that Jesus heals, uh, like Eric preached about last week, it's likely that she would have lived at the, on the outskirts of the city to avoid anyone. It's likely that, um, that she would have uh, been unable to interact with people. It's likely that she wouldn't have been able to have a husband to provide for her or been able to keep a job to provide for herself. Her situation would have seemed utterly hopeless. You know, we don't have the same purity laws today, but if you've had a chronic illness or you currently have one, I think you know somewhat how this woman feels. You know the, how lonely and isolating, and debilitating it can be. You know what it's like to be constantly aware of your condition, so much so that you can hardly think about anything else. You know what it's like to go from doctor to doctor to doctor to try remedy after remedy after remedy and find no relief. You know that feeling of hopelessness. And so, out of that hopelessness and a last-ditch effort, this woman comes to touch Jesus, hoping that just by touching him, she might be healed. And she does it in such a way that she's, she doesn't want to be noticed. She comes up from behind Jesus. Um, she kind of, you know, in the text, you almost get the sense of her kind of wiggling her way through the crowd. She comes up behind Jesus. She touches the very edge of him, almost so that even if he did notice it, he might think, oh, it's just someone brushing by him in the crowd. And she didn't want to because she didn't want to, for Jesus to see her as unclean and to send her away again, like so many other people had in her life. But to her surprise, she touches him and instantly... She's healed. But to her horror, she's also noticed. Jesus says here that someone's touched me, and I can tell because the power has gone out from me. And, you know, this is really, this is a weird phrase. I, I want to camp out here because I think it's more important than we think. It's a weird phrase, and it, it makes Jesus seem kind of like a, an electric fence. 
right? Like you touch it and you just get jolted by his divine healing perfection. But I think that when we read this in light of the rest of the Gospels, in, the, in light of the rest of the New Testament, what we find is that Jesus is trying to show us a deep, in a deeper way what, how he heals us. He heals us by giving us what he has within himself. He heals us by letting us participate in his fullness. Think about what uh, the, the first chapter of the Gospel of John says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we've received grace upon grace. You know, so often we approach uh, Jesus like this woman did. I, I think we have a low, uh, a low opinion or a, or a low understanding of what Jesus wants for us in encountering him. You know, she just wanted to be healed and then be able to kind of sneak away. Jesus not noticing her, no one else noticing her. She didn't want to bother him. And you know, so often we just want Jesus to kind of fix things in our life so then we can kind of go about uh, the rest of our life healed in these little places that we need fixed. But Jesus offers us so much more. Jesus wants for us so much more. He invites for us to share in his fullness, to be united to him by faith. He wants to call us, he wants to give us the title, daughter, our son of God, just like he does here with this woman. He wants to pronounce peace over us. And notice, peace here in the Hebrew, when Jesus, if Jesus had been speaking Hebrew to her, it would have been shalom. And that's more than just a, a normal sense of peace, just kind of, yeah, I hope things are well with you. Shalom refers to the kind of peace that comes from God setting all things right. Jesus pronounces this over her, and he wants to pronounce it over us. He wants to bring his fullness to the emptiness that results from our places of hopelessness. And friends, it's this union with Christ, this participation in the divine fullness, this is the only hope that we can have that can stand up to the hopelessness of living in a broken, fallen world. And as we examine Jesus' interaction with Jairus' daughter, we can see why. You know, the big question here is, um, why did Jesus not heal her? Like, why did he not heal her before she died? Surely Jesus could have done it from afar. There's nothing magic about, you know, Jesus touching her or her touching him. We see that with the bleeding woman. Jesus makes sure to tell her, hey, it's not you touching me that healed you. It's faith. And it's not even your act of faith that healed you. It's the object of your faith. It's me. So Jesus could have healed this 12-year-old girl from far away, but he doesn't. And if anything, Jesus, you know, he kind of, like, from Jairus' perspective, he kind of lollygags. You can imagine Jairus is thinking, you know, he's like, look, they don't have, I guess they didn't have wristwatches then. Um, 
If they did, he would have been looking at his watch, be like, Jesus, let's go. Look, you can take care of this woman later. You've healed her. You don't need to talk to her. Let's go. My daughter's dying. But Jesus waits. He hesitates. So much so that she dies. And this isn't the only time this happens in the the Gospels. This is the exact same thing that happens with Lazarus. Jesus waits. He prolongs. He waits until Lazarus dies. Mary and Mar- he shows up. Mary and Martha says, if you had been here, he'd still be alive today. So why does he wait? Why does he allow this little girl to die? Why does he allow Jairus to experience this absolute, ter- the worst thing that he can imagine happening to him? I think it's because Jesus is wanting to show Jairus and the disciples that he's the master over death, which means he's the master over their hopelessness. You see, death is the great enemy. Death is the thing that lies behind all of our hopelessness. But Jesus here is showing that he is giving a hope that goes beyond that hopelessness. He's giving a hope that goes beyond the grave. He's giving resurrection. You see, if you're pegging your hope in this, on something in this life, you're always going to be disappointed. In leadership circles, there's this uh, thing called the Stockdale Paradox. Admiral James Stockdale was a prisoner of war. Uh, he spent seven years in a, in a prisoner camp in Vietnam. And he was asked one time, um, you know, what, who doesn't make it and who does make it? in a prisoner of war camp. And he said that the people who don't make it, paradoxically, are the optimists. He said this, the optimists, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving and then Christmas again and they would die of a broken heart. He goes on to say this. This is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you'll prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. Friends, this is precisely what we have in the resurrection. This is precisely what the resurrection does for us. If you're looking for hope in anything this side of the resurrection, then you're going to end up like one of those POWs. You're going to die of a broken heart because you're always going to be left uh, hopeless. But if you peg your hope on the sure resurrection of the body, then you're going to have an unshakable hope that allows you to look square in the face the tragic circumstances of your current reality. You don't have to distract yourselves from them. You don't have to numb yourselves from them. You don't have to try and futilely control them or manage them. You can deal honestly with them. You can live life on life's terms. But you can do that precisely because you can be assured that in the end, you will prevail you can know that because you've been united to the 
fullness of Jesus through faith, as the Easter hymn goes, made like him, like him we rise. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that in Christ you've entered into the hopelessness of this world, you've entered into the hopelessness of our circumstances, and you've given us the hope of the gospel, especially the hope of the resurrection. This hope that goes, that transcends, that supersedes uh, any hopelessness that we can experience in this life. Father, we pray that like Jairus and like this bleeding woman, would you give us faith in that, in that message? Would you give us faith that you've entered into our hopelessness in the, in, in the incarnation? That in your life and death, you have made us clean, just like this woman, and that in your resurrection, we too will rise one day. Would you give us faith in that, Father, so that we can look the hopeless circumstances of our life full in the face, but we can do so knowing that we will prevail because you have prevailed over the grave in your Son. We ask this all in his name. Amen.